podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. AB says, if you had to compose an all-time 11 of players whose last name starts with the same letter, which would you choose? Uh, so he's gone Sober Smith, Stain, Bradman, both in border. So we all understand the idea. Um, it's funny, I saw this and I was wondering if you might have just picked the two letters where the most players automatically, uh, you know, uh, come from, if that makes sense. Um, I was thinking of, I was trying to think of bowlers that start with R, for instance, uh, where there's, you know, enough of them. And I went through the list. I do think that maybe the S or the Bs might be the best one. And you you either lucked onto that or you worked it out yourself. Based on that, you've got Sober, Smith, and Stain, Bradman, Botham, and Border. Yeah. I feel like based on that, I reckon the better team might be the S's. But as anyone who listens to this podcast or these chats will tell you, I probably will go with whatever favors the bowlers. But I'm going to be honest with you, AB. I'm happy to think about it. I'm not actually going to go through and do it because uh, it's uh, it would kill me. But it's a really it is um, it is a, a fascinating um, thought of where the you know what the best players have. But um, uh, so I think S might be my one based on based on the smallest amount of research possible. Christopher says, if New Zealand had had to then make money or break even on hosting a test match, uh, what would be the best course of action to do this, or is it just too difficult? Everyone can break even on um, test matches. Uh, the reason that they're not is because they're selling them as bilateral series. Uh, I hate to sound like a broken record to go back to the same thing, but if test match cricket had the ability to be sold as a league, a good chunk of the problems of test match cricket would just disappear. We're not selling it as a league. We're selling it as individual bilateral series. That's why New Zealand can't break even. They have to worry about the hosting fees. They have to worry about playing, paying their own players, all those sorts of things. If you're paying, if you're doing that part of a league, you could make that part of the structure of the league. Um, and not only could they break even, they could make a profit on Test cricket. But that's never going to happen uh, because they've had their chance to make it into a league. They didn't really want to do it. And you know, we seem to be uh, over the last couple of weeks catapulting towards league cricket um, at an incredible. Is catapulting the right word? Um, we're moving very quickly towards um, uh, league and franchise cricket. And they, all these smaller teams had their chances. They voted against it, and now it's coming back to bite them. Graham says, I see Sun on the Rhine is bowling at short sleeves these days. That's pretty unusual, even for an orthodox off-spinner. Yeah, um, shout out to uh, Sunny Ravindon, who I think was one of the first off-spinners to bowl uh, in long sleeves. Um, he must be feeling confident in his action right now. Is an international comeback on the cards? I believe the international comeback has been stalled more by fitness than anything else. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think of, I mean, he would have a pretty good relationship with Phil Simmons. Um, I think there's certainly a fitness element to Sonal Narayan's comeback. I got the feeling over the last year or so, he's been open to playing international cricket again. Um, obviously, in that period, they've also had Akil Hassan um, coming through. Um, uh, so, you know, 
not that obviously Son and Ryan's a better player, but I don't know if that complicates their thinking or or anything. Um, but I do believe, yeah, that he's moving to back towards her. And he's he's changed his action so much from the action that we, he's a different bowler, essentially, which just tells you how incredible skillful he is. But he's a different bowler than he was when he was um, being called all the time. Um, I can't think of that many players who probably changed their bowling that much. Rhubarb said, I never really noticed it at the time, but I came across articles in two, 2005 noting that Cricket Australia would no longer impose local blackouts on um, uh, broadcasts in Australia. Do you have any memories of TV blackouts being annoying? Yeah, I think everyone in Melbourne did. The, the biggest problem with, with that in, in Australia was, um, well, being in Melbourne was you had to get a sellout in your, your hometown to get the cricket played live. Almost nothing sells the MCG out right? 90,000 people is not selling the MCG out. And so we would be sitting there and watching, I don't know, let's say Hobart or The Wacker, you know, with less than 30,000 or 35,000 people in what, 15,000, 18,000 people get get sellouts um, sometimes and be able to watch cricket when we couldn't in Melbourne. It was ridiculous. Also, like it's been proven that they're, they're two different experiences. No one says, oh, I'm not going to go to the cricket side because I can watch it on TV. That's been proven time and time again. That's not what the experience is about. They're not like for like. Watching cricket on TV is a completely different kind of thing than watching cricket. And this goes for all sports. So those blackouts um, are terrible. Um, you know, and it goes back to the period where lots of places in cricket didn't really understand, you know, anything about cricket, I suppose. Um and so uh, it was annoying and we were all annoyed by it, um, probably more so in Melbourne than anywhere else. Um, uh, but, you know, at, that's, at, at a similar period you had in uh, India, the cricket board had to pay to put cricket on the TV. So it does show you how far we've come in such a little amount of time. Ian says, uh, the first 99.94 podcasts on West Indies and India have been great. Thank you. Obviously, Rush over, 90, you know, West Indies on 99.94 and India on 99.94. I think the Indian podcast might have three podcasts up. Maybe the West Indian one has four podcasts up. Um, I've been shocked at how good they've been considering, you know, we're just starting and um, and everything's going. Um, Sarah and Nikesh are a terrific pairing together for being so different to one another. Uh, another. What countries have we got coming next? Feels like an ad. Thank you, Ian. Um, this is like when someone asked me about Manscaped. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I put a lot of time into pairing the right kinds of people. Um, I, no one, there's very, there's very little accidents in 99.94, um, you know, very specific at the sorts of people that we're looking for. Uh, we've got England coming up next, and I might as well announce that now because that episode will be up very, very shortly, but that's Daniel Norcross and Rory Dollard. Um, again, uh, as I, I make fun of them in the opening uh episode it's very much to get they're two of the most argumentative people i know um uh, one is a you know posh boy from the south and the other one is a grumbly northerner although he hates that but i've taken to calling him that just because he hates it um i, I think they're a fantastic pairing um and then we have south africa coming after that uh, I'm, uh, I'm i'll hold that one back but we have two brilliant south african hosts i can't wait to do uh we'll then be doing double century as a weekly podcast, and we'll be doing the Sri Lankan one. So those are the first, or if you count this podcast you're listening to now, those are the first seven, um, and then we'll move on from there. We, we just don't know the other dates because it depends on funding and availability of people. And the reason that West Indies and India came is because there was we, we were originally going to 
I think launch everything in the middle of August. And then we had a look at the schedule and like, well, West Indies and in India are playing now, so we'll put them first. And then we looked at the schedule and new and uh, who's it? South Africa and um, England were playing next. And we're like, okay, so let's do that one. Uh, those teams next. It was more dumb luck. But the the original five international podcasts that we talked about, they were always going to be the first five that we were coming up with. But obviously, the plan is to have every international team covered by the end. Cam says, in the semi uh, versus England, the Commonwealth Games, India went overtime and had to defend the last over with only three fielders outside the ring. They also did it in the, uh, uh, in the final versus Australia, but weren't defending. Heard a few commentators praising the tactic to hold the game up and make the, uh, make the English batters wait, even with the reduced boundary fielder. But I'm guessing the reaction wouldn't have been so favourable if England had iced the chase and taken advantage of it. Do you ever have a feeling of what the better tactic would be in that situation? Cam, I didn't see that game. Honestly, the only game I saw other than highlights was the final. Um, probably a pretty good game to watch. Uh, pretty good final, uh, all things considered. In fact, mo- a lot of our major finals over the last few years, uh, you know, from what, from Carlos Brathwaite onwards, I would say, have been pretty good. But, yeah, I suppose it depends on the situation and what you're trying to do. And also the players who are out in the middle at the time, bowlers, boundary sizes and all that sort of thing. My problem with this is, though, Cam, is that, we're pretending that the batters don't hold the game up, which I just don't believe is true. And we're putting all the onus on the bowling team. I'm more than happy for 70 or 80% of the onus to be on the bowling team. But when we don't have bad um, over rates in, in international cricket or in franchise cricket because of bowling teams alone, it's the entire structure of the game. And so I do wonder, worry a little bit about that sort of thing. Um, James says, almost a year before Murali was called in Melbourne, Henry Alonga was called for throwing in Harare. Besides David Gower, who once uh, deliberately threw the losing run, Alonga was the first bowler to be called in a test since the end of the, 19, uh, the chucking epidemic in 1950s, 60s. Do you know if the ICC discussed the possibility of, of processes for suspect actions in respo- response to Alonga? No, you've got to remember that the whole chucking thing had nothing to do with the ICC beforehand. It was an umpire thing. The majority of the umpires were not, well, 95, 96. Did we have an elite panel then? Maybe just trying to remember what year the elite panel started. Um, but it was at the infancy of that, and it was down to the umpire's discretion. No, I don't think we did have an elite panel because I think when Murali was called, it was Hare at one end and Emerson at the other. Or maybe that's wrong. Actually, those were two different games, weren't they? But I think there were two Australian umpires still. Um, I have to look that up. Sorry, James. But uh, no, it wasn't an ICC thing. Uh, Sri Lanka made it an ICC thing, which Zimbabwe could have as well. But I mean, uh, Olonga wasn't a chucker. I think he threw his bouncer, which is actually really common, <laughs> incredibly common. Probably some of the greatest bowlers. In fact, I've talked to some of the greatest bowlers of all time who've admitted that, you know, sometimes they did, not even on purpose. Um, I, You know, you talk to bowlers candidly, fast bowlers candidly, and they're like, sometimes you just, you hit the crease wrong and you chuck. Um, so it certainly does happen. And I think Alonga was more along that line, although he was doing it repeatedly. Um, but Murali becomes a political issue because Shankar are like, this is nonsense. And... Uh, you know, t- if you look at Olonga, his was slightly different, but there was um, uh, there was another bowler in Australia called Troy Corbett who has a f- list day bowling average of 11, uh, who's my, one of my favourite bowlers when I grew up as a kid. He's called well, – yeah, I don't even think he was called in a game, but everyone thought he was a chucker and he stopped being picked. What what does he do then? All right, there was no – and this is what Sri Lanka was saying. As, as much as they didn't think he chucked, they were also saying, um, what's the process here? One umpire says he's a trucker and we can't play him anymore, or we have to play him in a game and hope that the umpire's on side. Like it was such a silly system. 
And so um, I think if Zimbabwe, and I'm trying to think when Preda Chingoka first got involved. So there was that period which Zimbabwe had an incredible amount of p- political power in the cricket because they were like the swing vote between uh, sort of like between Asia and non-Asia, I suppose, at the time. Um, uh, so he, I'm not sure if Chingoka was massively powerful at that point, though. That might have just been before his his uh, he, he sort of became that swinging vote. But um, that was if he'd have wanted to, I think a similar thing would have happened. The system was stupid. Like, A, like if some, let's look go back to Troy Corbett. So he's people think he's a chucker, and so he never plays again. Rather than Victoria picking him and trying to fix his action, um, Ian Mecketh, uh Yeah, I think I've got the book around here somewhere. Uh, if you're watching on video, I'm now looking at my books and not finding it. But uh, yeah, so I think um, I think with that, the ICGC weren't involved. So th- I think I wrote in my book that one of the best things that happened out of it, it was that w- no matter which side you come out of the Murali conversation. Science starts to take over. We start to look at it from a educational point of view. I remember Tom Sowell, when uh, he got called um, for Scotland when I was out there, and he was obviously really upset. Um, but I thought his action was probably, you know, a little bit troubling. But, you know, then you start talking to people and you realize, okay, well, we can do this. We can get you with this person. We could start to look at this. Those are the sorts of things that didn't really happen in Ian Meckiff's um, era, Troy Corbett's era, you know, many other bowlers who got called for chucking. All this, the players who played a whole career with suspicion. I mean, I mentioned Sonny Ramadan before. You know, there were English spinners um, uh, that obviously that admitted that their actions degraded. Um, you know, I know Syed Hajmal said some funny things about chucking, but I remember when I interviewed him about it, I think this is right, he was like, he couldn't believe that he'd gone from not throwing to throwing that much. Or from maybe a bit flirting with the angle to throwing that much. And and I've talked to a lot of bowlers who've said the same thing when they were called, just looking up and going, what? How did I manage to do this? So what Sri Lanka did was basically force it to be looked at more professionally. Um, and I just don't think Olonga... I mean, Olonga continued to play anyway, didn't he, uh, for quite a while. I just, Olonga's thing was individual balls. And that that's something that we don't talk about a lot. That There's a lot of people who have just flaws in their actions that need to be fixed. So Shane Shillingford, I would have thought, would have been a player that um, it, his action looked so flawed, it would have been really hard for him to legally bowl, uh, is my guess, um, consistently. Pragyan uh, Oja uh, is probably another one off the top of my head. Just their actions just had that 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 flaw within it that it becomes very, very tough. That's a little bit different to someone like Sun on Arrive, where some of his deliveries are like that. Um, it's a little bit different than some of the other, like someone like Henry O'Longa and some of the other bowlers who've gone through that system, who are like, okay, it's one ball, or it's actually when I do this, or it's actually when I get tired, or um, it's when I try and bowl faster, and all those sorts of things. Once you start to learn the different parts of it, so it was a political thing, but from that political thing, I actually think it's brilliant that um, we're in a much better position than we are. Um, yay politics. Nort says, given his recent BBL um, uh, work and his decent 100 form, what are the chances of Alex Hales opening the batting for England in the T20 World Cup down under? I, I think there's so many issues with Alex Hales. I don't, I don't think if you're not involved in English cricket at a fairly close level, you realise how many people are upset with him, the sorts of things that he's been involved with over his career. Um He's certainly got friends within English cricket as well. I'm not saying he's completely a pariah. I just think that when England look at it, unless they thought he was the difference between them winning and losing the tournament, I think it's tough for him to get back in. I 
when he left the team, I think he's actually a far better player now than he probably was at that point. So from a cricket perspective, I have absolutely no problem with him coming back. Well, I have no problem with him coming back anyway. But I think that there are still problems with Alex Hales um, that I think English cricket is, and, and some of this is just on them to, at a certain point, you just need to either suspend him for things that he's done or forgive him. And, and they're in this weird middle ground at the moment. I wouldn't expect to see him in the World Cup, though, Norts, if that's what you're asking. Abraham said, earlier this year, there was some great analysis by Jimenez Genju and you regarding Akshar Patel's drift, wingspan and hang time. Yeah, we got, we got fancy with him. It seemed that these attributes would make him effective irrespective of pitching conditions. He's not played away tests, but his attributes have not proven all that effective in limited overs games. Why is that? I think, firstly, I think he does need the pitch um, uh, to help. He's not a massive spinner of the ball. And so even everything that we said, he still needs that little bit of straightening because he's not a massive spinner of the ball. I think that uh, that, that is interesting. I, do, I haven't looked at his international record, but he's certainly had some very good years on occasion in the IPL with the ball. I think that a lot of the things that we were talking about probably make him, and this is weird because I think everyone thought of him as a white ball bowler until he played test cricket. I think a lot of the things he does are probably more important when you're trying to play him straight in a test match than they are when you're trying to slog sweep him uh, in a a limited overs game. My memory also is that he struggles a lot with lefties. I think that's right. I'd have to go back and check the numbers. Um, And because he does struggle struggle a little bit in in the 70s, yeah, I I think it's really interesting. I'd have to have a, a, a look, bit of bigger look at his uh, individual international numbers um, to see what you're getting to there, Abraham. But as from my memory, I think there's a lot of small little things that he does that he does completely brilliantly, which might make him a better test bowler. Whereas sometimes, I suppose in T20 cricket, what you really want is just to rag the ball sideways, or um, you don't want subtle deception as much as you want. Um, what's the best way of putting it? Uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, massive lateral movement or balls that can't be picked and those sorts of things. Because I don't think that's the same with um, Akshar Patel. But there are when, when you say that, you know, all those things that we're talking about are really handy, remember that Vernon Philander doesn't have a particularly good T20 record. And we've got other incredible seam balls. I mean, Kyle Jameson is just as much of a freak physically as Akshar Patel is in, you know, in his dimensions and what he does. Carl James is not a particularly good T20 bowler at the moment. And, and so the, those sort of subtle skills that he has when he can sit, sit in a, you know, if you think of Akshar Patel, it's really pitching every ball on what? Off stump and hitting leg stump. Um, and with Carl Jameson, it's probably the outswinger and the inswinger uh, outside off stump. Those are really good test skills to have. Do, they tra- do those two particular skills transfer over perfectly to T20 cricket? It's not that they couldn't be better T20 players because I think they can. But I don't think it's as a natural a fit. Uh, just remember, if you want to put your hands up in the room and ask any questions, I've got, just got a couple more Patreons. So uh, speaker requests, put them up, and I'll get to you in a moment. Roger says, will English cricket possess with four formats uh, and in process destroys the three main fo- formats, or will the ECB and counties reach compromise and have the T20 Blast as a 100-ball replacement? Yeah, I don't know. I think if I was... I mean, you wouldn't do half the things ECB had done, but I think if I was in charge, what I would want is a really strong second-tier tournament 
there probably would be all the counties because that's what you want. You want more players to get um, the opportunities and then you pick from the best to go. And I think I would look at the 100-ball format in this. And I'll tell you why. If you look at what they did with the Pro 40, how they won a World Cup basically with a lot of guys learning how to play cricket and 40 over cricket. So we know that the skills are vaguely transferable. And in some ways, 100-ball cricket might give you unique views and uh, different, slightly different styles in the way that you play. So I don't think that that's the end of the world. Uh, maybe the trickier rules, obviously, but I mean, you know, the Big Bash has some weird rules as well. Um, I think a lot of T20 tournaments around the world, you know, are going to probably get some funky rule changes over the next couple of years as the hype over T20 cricket dwindles down a little bit. So you might get that anyway. So I could certainly see why you'd have a really good second-tier tournament that is similar to the first tier. So you keep your your 18 counties, but maybe you would go towards 100 balls. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. I mean, as I've said before, 100 balls, 120 balls, it's mostly marketing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Neil says, what is your biggest, a personal biggest and most memorable moment while playing cricket? And conversely, what is your most embarrassing moment? Uh, I think personal biggest and most memorable are probably very di different. Uh, yeah, I was, most memorable is probably, you know, the times when I was on the ground when there was all in brawls or I remember feeling it slip one day, there was an edge and the wicketkeeper dropped it and I went behind him and I ran off to slip, turned around, picked it up and threw the stumps down and their umpire gave it not out and our field, I picked up the stump and chased him around trying to stab him with it. That's quite memorable. Uh, whether that's my, you know, uh, my personal biggest, um, maybe it's something different. Uh, obviously winning grand finals and, and all those sorts of things were great. There was, there was an innings I played once when our team stumbled into the, the semifinals of a tournament by accident. And um, I faced a fast bowler who was probably 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", at 15 years old and, and bowling probably you know, 75. So not out and out quick, but very quick on a synthetic wicket. And I hadn't made a run all year. It was my worst year of junior cricket. And I just decided to just try and stay in. And I think I batted for like 30 overs or something. And he must have hit me 40 times in everywhere right across the body to the point that about like two thirds of the way into his um, spell, even he, like he'd gone from sledging me to coming down to being like, I can't believe that you are just taking these on the body. I wasn't even playing shots. Um, I've also, I think a lot for me is great fielding moments and, you know, some incredible catches um, that I've managed to pull off, you know, diving ones in the slips, diving ones in the wicket keeping when I was a wicket keeper, probably any stumping I ever pulled off. Um, and I remember a short, a catch at, at, at um, silly, uh, silly Point one time that was off the face of the bat, someone driving. Um, that was probably the best. Um, what's my most embarrassing moment in cricket? Um, I, I, I've dropped some very simple catches. But I think the one that haunts me the most is I, I played with this guy called Anthony Frangos and hopefully he's listening. He won't be, but he was this incredible. He's the sort of person, if you played cricket from a young age, I think really would have gone on to be a really good cricketer. But I think he played his first game at 26 or 27. He's a natural athlete. These big end swingers, bolted a really good pace. Didn't always know what he was doing, but lovely guy. We, we put on some great partnerships in the tail. I used to love bowling with him. And, uh, I had um, stopped playing cricket for work and I came back one game and he was playing and uh, he took the first nine wickets in this, in this game, in this innings. And so he was on for 10 and I was feeling it slip and that's my best position. He got a simple edge. I've probably taken off him alone 
15 or 20 catches in my life because I played so much cricket with him in the end. But I hadn't played in a while. Absolute sitter, straight in, straight out. It's like, and we went up the other end and my friend, we were actually playing against a team where my friend was playing um, and he uh, got clean bowled. And so I left uh, Franger on uh, nine wickets. Um, that, it's, that really bothers me because, you know, we played so much cricket together. Although to, I should mention that we once went through a season unbeaten and Franger dropped the catch um, in the semifinal that basically cost us the game. So maybe me and Franger are about even on the embarrassing things that we did to each other last. But just a great person and, you know, what an honour it would have been for him to take that 10th wicket catch off him, but also watch him, you know, take all 10 wickets in a game. I don't think I've ever played in a game where anyone's ever done it. I, I played in a couple that have taken nine. My dad's taken nine, um, but I was probably too young to remember. But, yeah, so I'm missing out on that. Uh, that 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 bothers me. In South Africa, as three ODI tour of India in 1991, they wore navy blue um, caps and blazers rather than Kashmir green and gold. Okay. Do you know if there was any particular reason for the kit change? Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't remember it. I only remember them wearing green. Um, I mean, that said, um, perhaps it was something to do with the old colours, but... Um, they've obviously gone for green and gold again at the moment. I could only imagine that maybe there was a thing of maybe we want a new kit, you know, new day, and then everyone went, well, these are our colours, so these are our colours. Uh, but it, it, I, I've never noticed that before, James, so it's a really interesting question. If you'd have been a TV commentator or cricket writer in 1969-70, would you have gone to South Africa to cover Australian tour or were you have boycotted? I would definitely have gone, but I would have covered it, obviously, from the side of... Um, uh, that it shouldn't have happened. I'm trying to think. Did wasn't there a really good writer who went on one of the Rebel tours? Maybe someone from the Guardian or someone like that. Maybe I'm wrong. But no, you would go and you would show up why they shouldn't be there because I think that's a better case. I wouldn't go if I was a TV or radio commentator because you can't really do that there. Um, but if I was writing for someone, um, I think you know pointing out those sort of inequalities uh, is absolutely part of your job as as a writer. And also showing why the tournament, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the series shouldn't go on when you're, you know, in a bar in, in Melbourne, but getting over there and seeing exactly what is happening and why it is happening and talking to people. Uh, I, I think from a writing perspective, I would go on that tour. Uh, Ross says, are people talk, uh, making too much of Trent Bolt's decision or will we look back at it as a tipping point between the value of international and franchise cricket? I don't think, well, what's the best way of putting this, Ross? It seems to be of recent times we are speeding towards something that, you know, I probably started writing about when Dirk Nannis went freelance in, when was that, 2008, maybe 2009. So on that decision, I suppose, Trent Bolt isn't doing anything that we haven't seen in cricket for a long time. The difference is that it is Trent Bolt. We have seen other players. And because I, I think the other big difference now is, Ross, is that we have these multiple leagues so that it is possible in the future these players will play for the same franchise in three different countries. Um, does that make sense? Or the same ownership group in three different countries, however you want to do that. Um, but also we've seen Deandra Dotton and Lizelle Lees. I, I don't know because we've seen so many moments like this before, but I think now that what the IPL teams, the IPL teams and the owners are doing exactly what I said that they would do. Well, I suppose Rajasthan tried it a long time ago, but you know, I was talking about this a long time ago. If you were involved with an IPL franchise, what would you do? You don't buy a franchise in the CPL. You buy a franchise in South Africa. Now you would buy a franchise in America. Um, the Emirates league is another one that you would want to be involved in. And with all those different um, franchise leagues out there, 
you can then you can groom your coaches you can groom well groom's not a good word anyway so coach your coaches train up your coaches train up your analysts make sure that the same kind of physio treatment is given to all the players across the board you know develop you know uh, a young west indian or south african player um and bring them into your franchise and in a different way i think the ipl might start to open up to you know uh Maybe you can give rookie contracts to younger players if you've got them in other fran- in other franchise leagues or whatever sort of rules the IPL might come up with. Um, and if you're Trent Bolt and you know that you're going to get work, what, three leagues, maybe four leagues, um, depending on, you know, if they buy a team in Major League Cricket eventually as well. And you're... It's still, it still feels like to me it's a lot of players who are not dead certainties in their test team or international teams that are doing it trent bolt aside even then trent bolt's older i i think it'd be really interesting when we start seeing 25 year old players from big teams do it but i will say what i've said the whole way new zealand new zealand were losing players to to julian khan's professional team in the 1930s and 1920s um New Zealand players have never been paid enough money to play for their national team. They've always been ripe to be picked, and the same with the West Indians, and same with many different teams. Last one, if you had to construct an all-time test 11, a pure all-rounders, who would open the batting, and who would be your two new ball bowlers? Open the batting would be, ooh, the new man, Cad, and Ravi Shastri, maybe? I think so. Who would be my two new ball bowlers? So we're doing all-rounders. <clears throat> you probably have Imran Khan. Um, would you have Keith Miller, I suppose, at the other end? Um, depends on how you feel about Wilson Akram as an all-rounder, perhaps. Um, uh, depends on how strong you want the all-rounders to be there, Aditya. But, yeah, I think I think Vinu Mankat and Ravi Shah should come straight off the top of my head. I'm trying to think, did Trevor Bailey open? There's an English, I th- I've got a feeling there's an English all-rounder. I've, Shane Watson's an interesting one there too as well. I don't think, I mean, he probably has a higher batting average than Vinu Mancad, but certainly isn't probably the bowler that Vinu Mancad was. Um, do you, I could go down a rabbit hole with this this year, but I'm not going to. I'm going to go to the questions in the chat room, but thank you to everyone on Patreon, as always. And we have Rahul. How you doing, mate? Uh, hi, Jared. So I was um, I was hearing about Trent Bold and got me thinking about the leagues that you just mentioned. So what do you see as a future in terms of leagues all over the world that are popping up? There are only a certain amount of quality international cricketers that are there. So in the future, do you think it's it's even possible for these many multiple leagues to exist? Or do you think just the bigger leagues will just eat up the smaller leagues in the future? For example, and under Russell, I think he signed up for the UAE league, right? And it's happening at the same similar time as Big Bash happens, I think in December or January. And mm-hmm. like he can only play in one. So he'll only go for the one that is paying him more. So do you think in future, like leagues in Sri Lanka, like Sri Lanka already, it's a different reason why that league exploded. But you know, like now South Africa is trying again and UAE just mm-hmm. coming up with the league. So do you think in the future, is it even possible to have these many leagues or it's only just three or four leagues that can exist because there are only a certain amount of players that can play around the world. How many um, how many football leagues are there? There are few, but but how many basketball leagues are there? How many tennis tournaments are there? I mean, right? but there are one NBA that that we know mainly. No, there's not. No, there's there's tons of there's the there's the CBA. There's oh, he, heaps of leagues across Europe. There's you know the NBL in Australia. There's African basketball leagues. 
there are leagues right across the world for every kind of sport. You just don't know about them, right? And so what you're asking is, is there enough cricketers to support all these leagues? Shit, yeah. There's a fuckload of cricketers in the world, right? We have 3,000 3, professional men and probably, what, six or 700 professional women maybe in cricket at the moment. Is there enough players for all these leagues? Yes, there's enough players for another five leagues. If you open it up to Indian, if Indian players who can't get to the, let's say, the top league or the second top league start playing in all these leagues, or and Pakistani players as well, and Bangladeshis eventually as well, yeah, there's absolutely a shit ton of cricketers. Are the best players going to play in it? No, they're going to go to the best leagues like they do in basketball and like they do in football, right? That, that doesn't stop you from having the, um, uh, well, I, I'm trying to think of a bad football league. I can only think of the A-League in Australia, but, you know, that doesn't stop the A-League from existing. People still go to the A-League because it's live sport in their hometown with their team colors and they can cheer a team, right? And at a certain point, have a look at some of these players that play in, you know, in some of these football leagues around the world. They're, what, nowhere near international standard, those players, right? Um, And yet sometimes they get huge crowds and it's still the local team. And, you know, you know, I live in the UK, you certainly get that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, you, the Israeli Basketball League has some really good players in it, but it also has a bunch of people who probably not so much. The Turkish Basketball League is famous for having, you know, five good players in it and a bunch of guys who smoke during their timeouts, right? Probably a bit unfair on the Turkish Basketball League. Turkish people still go to Turkish basketball. People still watch it on TV. People, most importantly, especially in cricket, people still bet on it. These things still exist. They're still out there. Um so yes, there is always going to be there's always going to be more cricketers than you need um, uh, for than there will be um, uh, people that want to watch them. That's there's always going to be hundreds of people who are desperate to get into professional cricket in any level. Um, what do they have in minor league cricket in America at the moment? Twenty five teams, twenty eight teams. Um, you know, it's a semi professional league. Maybe one day it becomes a professional semi league, if that makes sense. Um, it's probably never going to be professional, professional. There's always going to be one. There's always going to be people who are willing to put on hold their university dreams, their job dreams, their aspirations to try and become a professional cricketer. Um, and as cricket grows, we haven't even tapped into most of the world yet, Rahul, have we? We haven't even. I remember talking to Neil Maxwell, who I think set up. Um, uh, what was it? Punjab, maybe, uh, whatever, you know, the Kings, whatever they were, the first, uh, uh, iteration, he, he, he set up one of the IPL teams and I talked to him not long after that. And he said to me, do you know what my biggest problem is, Jared? I want to be able to pick the best Brazilian cricketers in the world and the best German cricketers. And the be- and at the moment I can only pick from 10 countries. We're now getting to the point where we have Afghanistanis and Nepalese players and Singaporean players and Namibian players and Scottish players and American players, Canadian and, you know, all these different places. And, you know, you look at the fair break tournament with the women and, uh, you know, them giving women that from countries that we don't even think of as partially being cricket nation. Um, So, uh, yes, there will be enough players and there'll be enough to do those minor leagues. Whether those leagues work or not is a completely different thing. Right, because not all these football leagues around the world. So like money, how does money work? If like if not a lot of people are watching it, will it able able to survive? That's my only question. Like, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, remember though, when you say that, what's not a lot of people? So we talk about test cricket. I remember talking to a very 
a very well-known person in cricket. And he's saying to me, Jared, you've got to understand that like, you know, I, I think it was an international, for, for India, India playing international, it's a one day or a T20 and we can, they can get between 15 and 30 million people watching. And for test match, it's only 6 million. And I said, do you understand what 6 million people is? Do you understand that how many people that is to act for any TV company in the world, even in India? 6 million is a massive amount, right? If you're talking about Sri Lanka, what are we talking about? Um, you know, the Big Bash audience is what? Maybe anywhere from 300,000 to a million people on, on, on a very, very good game, right? That's a sustainable model. These things are sustainable models. The problem is that a lot of the people who are running it, have they're, not, they're all trying to make their own IPL, right? They really should be trying to make their own. Probably the Big Bash is probably the better thing for a lot of these boards to copy. And instead, they're going after the model that they can't replicate. They should be looking after looking for models that they can replicate. Um, even the Major League Cricket is quite interesting in, in that it's a slightly different model. Um, and you do see, you know, occasionally new leagues coming in. But are you saying that we can't? I, I find it very hard to believe that you can't come up with a model where you get 200,000 people in Sri Lanka to regularly tune in and watch a game on TV with 10,000 people occasionally filling the stands night after night for a month or three weeks or whatever, however long that. I, I'm sorry, I just I just don't see how that's possible. So smaller sorry, investment and smaller profit. Essentially, that would be a good model rather than huge investments and looking for huge profits like IPL does, essentially. Yeah, I, I think what happened was a lot of them thought that they could be the next IPL. They thought they could do... Lalit Modi did a lot of brilliant things, but what's the best thing he did really is he found a product that was already going to a, a huge profitable audience, right? The Sri Lankan cricket audience or the South African cricket audience is not the same. So what you really have to be able to do in those places is be like, how do we do this? And I think one of the best ones has probably been the CPL. They're not filthy rich as a cricket board. Um, the CPL is privately run, um, but they are very, very clever at screwing their heads on correctly and going, okay, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do, but we're never going to try. You know, If we can get into the American market, which they tried, hasn't quite worked for them. That's a really successful model, the CPL. Um, and I don't think you know that Major League Cricket probably raised more money in, in one year than CPL's ever raised would be my guess, right? And the CPL model is a really, really good, tight little league. That's not how all these leagues are going. And the other thing that they do is they end up throwing money at international players. I'm not sure that's, again, what you need to be doing. I think what you need to be able to do is make sure that, the, you know, the pitches are good, you know, the, uh, the commentary is of a certain standard, the games are on at the same time every night, you know, at a good time. All the, you know, it's on free-to-air TV or, or whatever that, you know, a, a different version of that is. All those sorts of things. And I think a lot of the money that is spent by these T20 leagues is them trying to become the whatever um, version of the IPL. And outside of maybe America and Pakistan, I'm not sure anyone else has a market that that is even a kind of a viable thing financially, right? And so what you have to do is, I mean, I think the Big Bash is probably now going to get squeezed, but the Big Bash will continue to, we, we look at the Big Bash, we go, oh no, all the best players are going to go to South Africa and the UAE. That's probably undoubtedly true in the future. But 
when you watch the Big Bash in Australia, you're still going to have international players coming through. You're still going to have um, uh, the Australian players, you know, the, you know, the, the sort of mid-tier Australian players who become sort of, you know, um, uh, fan favourites and all that sort of stuff because it is still a decent quality tournament. And I think that's where a lot of places have People are still going to watch it. Or people are still going to watch it. Yeah, because it's the Big Bash is aimed at Australian audience. It's Australian TV audience, right? And that's that was actually one of the things Cricket Australia got wrong originally. But once they worked out what it was, they nailed that. And I don't think that's what everyone else has managed to nail. But the Big Bash and the CPL and the IPL, they're all very different models to each other, right? Um, but they all they all cater better to their own market than I think some of the other leagues have managed to be able to do. Um, but uh, anyway, man, thank you so much for your question. Thanks, Jared. That was insightful. Fazal. Hi, Jared. Hey, mate. What's your question? Yeah, it was a good discussion on the leaks. Basically, uh, my question arises from that only. So what is the business model of UAE leaks? Because they don't have a market, right? So they're definitely tapping to Indian and Pakistani market. And yeah. they have made sure that Pakistanis will not play there, Pakistani cricketers. So how is that sustainable? I'm not sure it is. <laughs> I mean, this is, what are we up to? I feel like this is uh, maybe the fourth or fifth iteration of a league. What they're trying to do is essentially have a league where they have, and, and UAE, everyone who's tried to have a league in the UAE has more or less tried to do a similar thing, which is try and have a league where you can have as many overseas players as possible. And so that is their big draw. Having the ability to have, outside of Pakistani and probably outside of a few Indians, having the ability to have close to the 11 best players available would make it an even stronger um, 11 on paper than, uh, you know, than the IPL at times. And uh, that is a tricky thing. For, uh, I, I think that's kind of what the old global T20 league in South Africa was, was thinking about doing as well. But this is, I think there was the T20X, it was the Emirates T20 league it was another one so there's been a few that have tried to do this and it has never quite worked uh the other thing is that they've got proper money involved um uh in it which it that's always a better start um you know you see some of these leagues and you look at the people who are investing and you're just like well how long is this going to be sustainable these don't feel like you know massive uh th these don't feel like people who understand uh the sports uh, market and how these sorts of things work so um i but having said that, where unless the audience is going to be in India, which is possible, it's a good time zone. Um, it's going to have a lot of good players in it. It that that one has to work in India, um, and that is obviously a very big part of it. Um, but yeah, as a as a basic rule, it doesn't make as much sense to me. But maybe if we have a league where we have, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven of the best players um, uh, in, in every uh, starting lineup. Maybe there is something to that that means that it does break through and people in Asia watch it, people in the UK and South Africa watch it. Um, uh, but the reason the other leagues work is you've got a game in prime time um, and it's your hometown boys, even if it's not your hometown boys, et cetera, um, playing. So this is a separate model to this, but based on, and this is why the boards don't like it. That's why they're fighting it at the moment. Um, but based on the fact that you can have more international players. Thanks for your question. I'm going to read out James's question from the chat, not in James's voice because I don't know what that is. Uh, 
Who's batting in your all-time T20 uh, international team? Totally overlooked domestic records, so no easy picks of Gail, Andre Ross, you pick them purely based on international records. I'm going to be honest, James, I have no idea what anyone's international <laughs> records are. Um, I just never look at T20 international records. Um, they're so fluky and they don't mean anything um, uh, realistically. But I think I've got a feeling that Paul Sterling, Martin Guptill, Aaron Finch have exceptional T20i records. I think that's right. I feel like I see their names a lot. I can't think of anyone else. I mean, geez, uh, does Watto have a really good T20i? I know he's had some great tournaments for Australia, but I'm not sure if his overall numbers were were that particularly high. Um, who would you have? I'm trying to think from England. Besto got really good record at T20i. Feels like he should have. Uh, I tell you what, I, I, let's um, – um, oh, I'm trying to think of someone in South Africa – does A.B. De Villiers? No, he doesn't, does he? Oh, God, that's annoying. Yeah, I'm really struggling, James. It's a good question. I just, they're just not numbers that matter. I mean, the IPL is, not every game is stronger than international. Obviously, you know, especially when you get to the finals of international tournaments, that generally the, the finalists are better than IPL teams. But an average international game, especially with the amount of players who are rested and don't play, um, uh you know, I mean, put it this way, before a tournament, it's very rare for me to even look at international um, stats because Australia never play their full strength team ever before a tournament. Um, the last tournament, they were literally picking random players, hoping that it would work. And it did. They won the World Cup. Um, teams are resting players all the time. You usually get two teams resting players at the same time. Uh, team Because of, there's so few T20 internationals, you don't get a situation where someone plays... Um, a lot of them because teams are usually trying new players and all sorts of things. So, and then on top of that, you know, you, you have players with incredible, uh, I, so Mark Adair, pretty sure this is true. Mark Adair has absolutely brilliant T20I um, uh, numbers. And Mark Adair is a really, really good, especially a new ball bowler in T20 cricket. Can't really bowl at the death. And I think the higher the level he plays, if he doesn't take wickets with the new ball, I think you'll have problems with Mark Adair in, in franchise leagues. But look at his international numbers. And there's a lot of players out there in, in a similar way. But Dawood Milan is the real reason that I don't trust them. Uh, Dawood Milan is not a is not the world's best player. We in he would play for England and make a bunch of runs and then go back for franchises and really struggle. And we know that week in, week out, he's a really good T20 player, but he's not one of the world's best. And yet his T20i numbers, and I don't want to say fluke, it's not fluke that he made the runs because he certainly has the ability to make a runs, but there's kind of an element of randomness that he made all the runs in T20i's and failed in so many other domestic leagues at a similar time. Um, I, wouldn't, I if When I'm looking at T20 numbers, I never, and I have a look at any of my videos, and I've got one on Shy Hope coming up shortly. I almost always look at T20 domestic records uh, rather than international because people just play more of it and you get a better sense of it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're playing 10 games in a league, that's far better than the way that most international players play internationals. So that's why. So sorry that you couldn't speak though, James. Danny, you there, mate? Hi, Jared. Hey, mate, what's your question? I'm a bit more happy with the England test side now, <laughs> uh, but I'm not... So I was just wondering what you think about selecting players with very poor first-class averages for test match cricket. 
because he, you know, he averages only 30 in first class cricket and now he averages, what, 25 in first cricket. So do you think that's always a bad idea? I think that with someone who averaged 30 in first class cricket, you are picking them on the hope that they know how to make professional runs and they haven't worked it out. And I think making professional runs is an art in itself, almost separate to being having test batting qualities. So I'm, I, I did. I, th- I think you might have cut out. I'm assuming you were talking about Zach Crawley. So Zach Crawley has some very obvious parts of his game that make sense if you are looking at a scouting report for a test cricketer. But what he doesn't have is the ability to churn out consistent runs, which means that there is probably something. I, I would say there's something missing with his technique, but I also think there's probably something missing with the way he executes his skills that means he can't consistently make runs in a professional environment. Now, I don't think he's going to end up his career with a, a you know a first class average of 25 or, or 30. I'd be very shocked at that. I think something will eventually click over. But I do think there is something to be said for that, which is a little bit different to bowlers because you kind of want to pick bowlers right. I, I always think of Ben Hilfenhaus, of someone who probably by the time he played test cricket wasn't the Ben Hilfenhaus that those of us saw at shield level. I think a lot of people now look at Ben Hilfenhaus and go, oh, you know, fast, medium bowler, swung it. Okay, when we saw him, he was bowling at, you know, over 90 mile an hour outswingers um, and was almost unplayable for, you know, a year and a half, two years there. So you almost want to pick him the minute that that happens because he now has a stock delivery that should bother everyone in, 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 in the game. That's not how batting works. I think there is an element of batting where you want to see that they can make consistent runs at the professional level and then bring them in. And... I don't want to pretend that so, so first class cricket in some ways is a very flawed metric to work out if someone's going to be good in test cricket, but failing at first class cricket probably tells you more often than not that someone isn't going to be successful at test cricket. And I think that's the issue that I kind of have. And I always put this out there. I don't think there is a player who had a successful white ball run, but really struggled in test cricket with the bat who's ended up becoming a really good test batter. So it's been tried quite a lot. England have tried it a lot. Australia have tried it a few times. I'm trying to think South Africa maybe. I'm trying to think some other teams probably have I, you know, played around with it as well, maybe New Zealand a couple of times. But I can't think of a single person who's been able to do that. And, and we you know, let's look at someone like Aaron Finch. There's a reason why Aaron Finch couldn't consistently make runs in first-class cricket. I don't see how that reason goes away when he plays test cricket. And I do believe that that is an issue. And that's one reason why I've always believed in Johnny Bairstow. Even when his test average has dipped is because I know he can make runs in first-class cricket and I know how good he is in white ball cricket. I'm willing to say that, yes, he has flaws and he might never average over 40 in test cricket, but he has the ability to do something that others don't. He still has to be technical flaws and he's still going to go through huge periods where he doesn't make any runs. But that's why I would never have brought Just Butler in in the first place because I thought it caused problems with Johnny Besto, blah, 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 blah. So I think that's essentially why I look at it. But at the same time, first-class cricket is so incredibly limited. It is so uh, incredibly um, – realistically, first-class cricket should set you up to be really good at first-class cricket. Test cricket is – it's an extra day. It's on much different kinds of surfaces. Um And I've said this a lot before, especially for batters. In first-class cricket, if you have a flaw, you can hide it because you might only play that team twice a year and the bowlers might have forgotten it. Less so now with analysis, but certainly traditionally. 
Whereas you remember talking to Eddie Cowan when he faced Zahir Khan and like the third innings that Zahir Khan bowled to him, Eddie Cowan's like, oh, he's worked me out. And he then realized he had another, what, two and a half tests facing Zahir Khan. That doesn't happen in first-class cricket. So there are specific things that you have to be able to handle that you don't in in first-class cricket. Having said all of that, first-class cricket is still, until we have a proper A-League um, that is played around the world, probably the best way of, of helping um, work out who the best cricketers are. Does that make sense, Danny? Yeah, thanks, Jared. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, would you drop Prooley? I would never have picked him. So it's probably an easier one for me than anyone else. Uh, but yes, my, my big thing is, I remember having a chat, there's a bunch of, Eng- I think there's a bunch of English journos who were like, really want him to do well because I, because I know how exciting he is when he plays well, which is one of the cool things about Crawley. And I was saying to them, if that's what you feel, tell me how continuing to pick him is going to help. We know every now and again he's going to play that bl- you know, that blistering 60 and we're all going to go, ah, oh, that's why they pick him. And we know very occasionally he might break through that barrier and make 100. And again, it'd be very exciting. But what about all of the failures in between? I just, I don't see how he's going to fix his game at test level at the moment with the flaws that he has. The, the, the flaws of not being able to make consistent runs and the technical flaws that he has. There's too many. And I don't know. I, I, I just think test cricket is so hard at the moment for, for batters. I, 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 I can't see how that's a good idea. And the same with Hamid as well. I, I just think what, what happened with Matt Renshaw and he might never come back for Australia, I thought made a lot of sense because they, when they got him in there, they took a chance, then they realised how limited he was, but he's gone back and he's really rounded his game off. And I think he would now be a much better chance of coming back and having a really great career for Australia. Had they kept him around, I think they could have absolutely destroyed him. Uh, thanks so much for your question, though. We've got a couple more. Keshuv, you there? Yep. Hi, Leonard. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. What's your question? Yeah, so just happened to watch your video on uh, Commonwealth Games today, how Indian women lost. So I just felt one of the reasons why Indian women have been choking in these, uh, you know, pressure knockouts and semifinals or finals is they do not really have a women's IPL or a high-pressure tournament where, you know, they can... There's a lot more at stake than playing bilateral and everything. So do you think it stems down to these factors as well that, you know, Australian women are literally dominating because they have a proper, much, much better structure in Australia with a proper women's BBL? So how much of all this stems down to having that tournament? How have the Indian men's team gone over the last few tournaments? Yeah, so that was going to be the part B of my question. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So, yes, on a very basic level, it would be better if they had a proper tournament. I don't think they're as good as some of the better teams anyway. And I think that what happens sometimes is you see them get... It's a bit like... I'm trying to think. It's a bit like watching Ireland this summer. I don't know how much of Ireland cricket you've watched recently. Ireland get themselves into a lot of good positions. And there's been this sort of thing that Ireland chokes and Ireland can't handle the pressure. What happens is that Ireland can get themselves into a good position, but they're a very limited team, right? There's a difference between getting yourself into a good position and being a consistent threat to your opposition. And I think that having watched a bit of India in the, in the one dayers and the T20s um, when it comes to the women's team, I think there's a lot of flaws within that team. Now, you might be able to iron out a lot of those flaws if you had a professional competition. 
On top of that, why is Australia the best team in the world? Because they have 80 professional women to pick from, right? And everyone else has 25 or 30 or 40 at most, right? So Australia is literally training prof- women how to be professional cricketers while everyone else has got a, a p- group of 15, 25, 35 that they have decided are there and thereabouts. So that is a huge advantage as well. Um but I do, I, I mean, looking at that Indian side, I just felt it was a limited side that played really, really well. Um, and both teams struggled at the end of that game. So I think it might sound silly, but that little bit of bad luck when Harman Preet hits the ball into a helmet probably is the difference. Um, and and they might have been, they might have beaten Australia, but they also might have, not luck is the right word, but they might have been flattered by beating Australia, right? If that was the case, because... I think um, Sarah Waris said an incredible stat, and I'm not sure if it was a one-day or T20 um, stat from the women's team, but the top three or four averaged something like 45 or 50, and the rest of the batters averaged something, or the next four batters or something averaged less than 15 or something. I can't remember what her number was, but I remember hearing it and going, what the hell? Like, that's not a sustainable model. And when you're playing in uh, knockout games, that's when – you need, you need that. That's why I'm always talking about the strength of number sevens in T20 tournaments. It, you don't need them throughout the majority of the tournament, but when you get to the final and you lose three wickets in the first, you know, eight, nine overs, you want to have a strong number seven there. Otherwise your, your batters at the crease are going to block because they're going to be terrified that the number seven is going to be in really soon. And watching, watching what India did the other night actually reminded me of uh, a game where, um, Melbourne Stars, when I was the analyst for Melbourne Stars, where we lost the final against the Renegades, where we knew we went in with a batting lineup that was one too, too few. And because of that, the top order players batted within themselves a little bit more than they had to. When we lost the wickets, we couldn't catch up. Right. And we weren't that, we weren't, we were ahead of the game exactly the same way that India was. But once we lost a bunch of wickets, there was a natural slowdown and that was it. We just never got back into that game. And you see that a lot with batting lineups that aren't very deep. To go back to your original point, would they have as weak a batting lineup if they had more professional players to choose from? Uh, I would probably suggest not. Uh, but, you know, that's a hypothetical. But what isn't hypothetical is that if they had 50, 60, or 200 professional women, which they probably should have in India at the moment, uh, they should absolutely be, if not the best team in the world, but a far better women's team than they are now. That, that whole thing of, uh, you know, they need to get better so that we have a league, that's the opposite of how it works. And I think the Australian cricket team have completely proved that in the way that they've gone about things. Yeah, but just putting now the uh, men's team into perspective a little bit here, like like I always said, if the women's team were having the you know luxury of an IPL for them, but the guys have been playing the IPL since fifteen for fifteen years now, and they have been mm-hmm. choking in these big finals. I think after twenty thirteen. So, do you think it's so for both of them, is it a bit of a you know mindset thing that you know a billion people are having so many hopes on us, and that's that's one of the things that really gets the better of them in these nervous knockouts? There's a very important thing that you need to know here. I don't believe in choking. Okay, I think it's a nonsense phrase. Australia choked in that game, completely bottled the end of their innings. What they lose five for thirty six and five overs, right? Both teams completely bottled that. Australia bottled the first 14 overs, right? The first 14 overs of that game, India were completely on top, right? So you have two situations where the Australian team, by far the best, 
this stage you'd have to say almost by far the best cricket team we've almost ever seen as far as dominance um, a, a period goes. I had two moments where they had that in that particular game. What gets you through is if you have better players. And I've said this a million times. If you go back and you have a look at all those South African games, most of those teams had flaws in them. And I was talking about the flaws before the tournament. Everyone else worries about them when they lose that big crucial game. Those flaws didn't just suddenly arrive when they're under pressure. Those flaws, you could see those flaws baked into that team. No, 1999 World Cup, both teams choked, if that's your definition of the word. And Damian Fleming has said that multiple times. Paul Rifle, absolutely stuffed up. Damian Fleming got his lines and lengths wrong. Australia got their field positions wrong. They were panicking, right? But we never talk about Australia choking because they won right? It's kind of nonsensical. What the most important thing here is, I think the Indian men played a form of cricket that they thought would give them the most consistent amount of wins and it hasn't won for them in major tournaments. And I think that the Indian women are just not of that level where you can say that they, they can be in games, but there's a big difference between being in a game and even being slightly ahead in a game and actually winning over the full 40 overs, right? They are not a better team than Australia right? Woman for woman, go through that team. No one is sitting there going, this Indian team is currently a better team than that Australian team, right? And generally what happens is over time, the better teams find a way to win because they are better teams. We then say, oh, choke, choke. What we really mean is, and what we should say more often, they weren't quite good enough to get over the line. And if you look at that, you go back to Sarah Warris's thing, that's not choking. They haven't, they came into the tournament without a strong middle order. What Deepthi Sharma, what's her strike rate? Something like 90, 95? You know, there's a lot of players in that Indian middle order who really are not consistent run getters um, and not, not the sort of people you want in in a final against Megan Schutt or Jess Jonathan, right? You're not playing against an average team at that point, right? If you've got a weak middle order and you're going up against the best team in the world, chances are you're going to lose if they find a way to put any pressure on you. If they don't, and Harman Pree is so brilliant that, you know, she almost had the ability to take that pressure away, that's completely different. Once the pressure was put back on, you have a look at that middle order and the lower order of India, and you're suddenly like, good luck. And if you go back to, to that game, the only reason India even get close, mate, is because a misfield, an edge, and five wides. Otherwise, once Australia got on top, their bowlers were so good that India didn't even really have a chance. Just one last follow-up on this. Like, so the men's team, you know, after the last T20 World Cup, the way they were unable to get through to the next round, they, they there seems to be an actual, a very conscious change in their approach. And they brought in a couple of T20 specialists to, you know, fix those loopholes and mm-hmm. go into this World Cup with a fresher approach. But with women's, I feel if these are their best players already... How do they fix this going into the D20 World Cup in Feb? Because the women's IPL is also not going to happen before that. So how do you think they can improve in, in these next few months? Yeah, I mean, if this, is, this goes back to how you develop cricketers and how quick. I mean, unless you can come up with a, you know, Baz McCullum style um, <laughs> theory that completely changes the way that you play, or you can open up the players and make them feel freer and more confident like some coaches maybe could do. Um, I can't see how they're going to change things massively. But having said all that, they were still in that game for, what, 38 overs, right? So 
if you can if you can push Australia for thirty eight overs, um, especially in non Asian conditions, Asian conditions maybe you know uh, you might say maybe the Australian team isn't quite as strong. Although I haven't looked at the Australian women's numbers, they probably are. Um, but you know, in non Asian conditions, if you can push them for thirty eight overs, I think you're still in a fairly good position. I would have to go through the team individually to look at how they grow. Uh, when you look at the men's team, it, it, I just think that they had the ability in that men's team, and I think you can go back as far as the 90, 97, the, the 17 Champions Trophy, to be like, I just think that they could play another way. And I've been saying this for a long time, probably with Australia and India, that they, they, they're sort of stuck in that sort of conservative, old-school style a way of playing. And the West Indies and um, India, uh, sorry, West Indies and England are probably taken limited overs cricket to a different position and they're not quite set up for that kind of cricket. So again, I don't think that's particularly choking. I just don't think they were playing perhaps the best style uh, that could put, the with their talent, that could put the most pressure on the other team. Uh, but thanks so much for your question, mate. Uh, who we got next? Last one, which is Varun, uh, who says, India have got enough depth for me for two, maybe three full international teams. Even if you have a well-defined style of playing, if you're picking one squad, you have so many combinations. How do you go about assembling a team with so much choice available to you? This is something I probably talked about a little bit, but I think the, the biggest problem within international cricket is this sort of dogmatic belief that the 11 is a sacred thing. And we know from data that no team has ever put out the same 11 more than 11 times. I think it's 11 times, might be 12 times. Um, Kartike Adate um, puts that one out occasionally. But the West Indies, and I think Australia might have got to 9 and 10 a couple of times. What we really need to do then in that situation, Varun, is, and this has to be, the thing is, this only works if you do it right across the board in cricket. We have to really start thinking about cricket more as a squad sport and less of an 11-based sport. And I think that is the way that you have the ability then to do that. But that only works if you do a similar thing in first-class cricket and, you know, and, and all the way through. Um, I remember being, when I was at RCB, you know, it was this big thing that we were going to have a completely flexible 11. The squad was going to play and we might have five changes from game to game, but those five changes would have nothing to do about form. It would be about matchups and it would be about pitch conditions and it would be about, you know, all those sorts of things. And the first game, a bunch of players got left out and they all thought they were dropped. <laughs> and so I really do think it's a mindset thing with cricket. And you, you, you see this in a lot of sports. I'm trying to think of sports that are maybe slightly better at it. But, you know, you see in basketball, this players absolutely obsessed with being in the starting five, even if they're going to play less minutes than they would if they're on the bench and maybe play a worse role. Um, and, you know, you see you see in other sports the same thing of like, oh, I, won't, I don't want to be arrested. I want to play every game. And it's like, well, we get that you want to play every game. We want you to play at your best every game. And so I do think that, you know, this is the thing that I, I believe now what we understand. If you take it from, what's the best way of putting it? If you take it from the 50s, 60s and 70s, where in those days your best players played as much as possible, but everyone did and everyone was absolutely exhausted. And there was almost a, a, an understanding that other than a few, you know, iron people most people were going to play slightly below their best just because there was no other way to do it i think what we're getting towards in elite sport and and this probably comes from the olympics as much as anything and you know athletics and swimming and those sorts of sports is we really want our best players to be playing at their best and in order to do that we need to manage the entire squad 
And, you know, England is probably the first team to talk about having a platoon of fast bowlers. Sadly for them, even with the platoon, they all got injured. But going ahead, that's kind of what you want, isn't it? You probably want to have six players who, you know, who can bowl over 90 miles an hour and have them all at a position where any of them can play at, at a minute's notice. Um, you want your spinners, you want your specialist spinner in non-Asian conditions and your specialist spinners in Asian conditions. Same with your middle order batters. Um, same with your opening batters. I mean, one thing we never really talk about is that opening the batting in Asia and opening the batting uh, in England are two different jobs. They're not even that comparable. So going to Asia, you might want that sort of Saywag type middle order player to step up, make sure that they get through, you know, a couple of overs with the new ball in Sri Lanka or, or um, India um, and then cash in um, and play the spinners quite well. You might not want your opener who can't sweep or doesn't know how to use his feet or whatever that situation may be. So that's where, I mean, in England, in India's case, as you said, they've got such incredible variety available to them. I think there's, it looks from the outside and this was maybe towards the end of Ravi Shastri's reign. And I think even with Raul Dravid, it looks like to me, they're looking more at things in terms of depth charts now. And I really do think that that is probably the way forward in cricket uh, to get the most out of your international talent and and your franchise talent as well uh you know your core six players maybe eight players if you're lucky doesn't need to change that much um unless they have massive flaws in in certain situations or against certain matchups or whatever that may be but there should be a huge flexibility within the rest of your team and i i think that cricket teams understand this now but they haven't worked out a way of doing it which doesn't seem to upset the players um and that causes them huge problems uh you know perfect example of this would be Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson um you know not particularly happy at the way they've been treated over the years uh, ECB will say well that's why you're still playing at 40 to Jimmy Anderson and Jimmy Anderson will be saying uh, actually it's because I have freakish genetics and I'm a, a god um yeah, both valid points, I suppose. Anyway, thank you to everyone. Great Patreon uh, today. Oh, Patreon. What is this? Well, support me on Patreon. Um, great uh, podcast today. Uh, really enjoyed it. If you do want to hear uh, West Indies on 99.94 or India on 99.94, please uh, head over to those podcasts. They're in the streams. You can find them in the YouTubes. Um, you know, the, the more support we can get for the early podcast, the more podcasts we can get on. So even if you only want to listen to the odd episode on West Indies, West Indies did a brilliant episode on DeAndra Dotton's retirement, which I found fascinating many different reasons and the uh commonwealth games um final being recapped by the indian podcast was really good as well so it's not just that it's there for fans there might just be individual episodes that you might like but the point is if you're a fan of another team outside of england south africa and sri lanka which will be coming hopefully within the next few weeks the more support we can get on the podcasts the more podcasts that we can do uh we eventually obviously want to have every international team covered we want to have a daily t20 podcast you know we want to try all these different things going forward but from a very you know very basic level the more that you can support us now the more we can get podcasts to you in the future and the same as uh, with this podcast obviously you know with red inca we'll be looking at doing three days four days a week going forward uh where possible so huge thank you to everyone for listening out and i'll talk to you again very soon Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. You can now download us wherever you find your apps just by putting in 99.94. 
There'll be other cricket podcasts not actually hosted by me, and there'll also be some radio commentary coming soon. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Mm-hmm.